2: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land welcome to reclaim me i'm your host madeline heather reclaim me is a true crime podcast told by those at the center of those crimes the victim survivors the general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media and we're changing that narrative here these interviews are raw and honest so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners so please use your discretion If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello, fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Happy holidays, and I'm just dropping in with a bonus episode with Hannah Ferguson from Cheek Media today. Since the time of recording, some of the stats and information that we discuss in this have changed. One in particular is you'll hear us make a reference to 10 women being murdered due to violence in Australia in 20 days. However, that sadly has changed The current statistic, as reported by the Red Heart Foundation, is sitting at 13 women have been murdered in this month alone, 57 women overall in this year in Australia, which is an unprecedented level of women. It is exceeding last year's. I will also be adding a lot of information into the show notes for this episode. There is another mention that we have during this recording where we speak about the Queensland investigation into DNA following the Australian's reporting on the Shandy Blackburn murder. So I do want to give two shout-outs here, specifically at the beginning. Number one is to... Headley Thomas and the Australian's investigation into Shanti's story the podcast which broke and Dr Kirsty Wright who was the one who really began to deep dive into this DNA. I don't want to call it a debacle because it feels like that's undermining what the situation currently is but anyway I will add some information so that you can all read up on that and get well versed on it. I know DNA is a complex topic but go and listen to the Shanti's story and Shanti's legacy podcast and you'll get a very good background into the reasonings and why this is such a big deal that's happening in Queensland right now. Second to that, I really do also want to give a major shout out to somebody that Hannah and I referenced during this uh, discussion as well, which is Sherelle Moody, who's Australia's Femicide Watch. She's an award-winning journalist, femicide researcher and anti-violence advocate who runs the Red Heart campaign and Australian Femicide Watch. She is the person that is drawing out all of this information so that we can report on violence against women and how many women, sadly, have been murdered. Not all of them have been murdered due to domestic violence, but these are 57 deaths at the current time, being the 27th of December 2022, women have been murdered due to violence. So just giving her a shout-out, please go follow. You can donate to the Red Heart. Anyway, I won't delay any further. Here is my interview with Hannah from Cheek Media. I am joined today by Hannah, who's coming all the way from Queensland, up north,
1: north from Victoria. Oh, far anyway. north, Pauline Hanson territory.
0: <laughs> you're not that high up,
1: you're in Brizzy. <laughs> no, no, but it feels like I'm deeply associated and that's a shame for me. But
0: <laughs> I feel sorry for you to be associated with that, but um, <laughs> anyway, welcome. Um, do you mind giving the listeners a bit of a rundown
1: on, on who you are, Hannah? Yes, I am the founder and chief executive officer of Cheek Media Co, which is basically a news commentary platform that's fully independent Australian and aimed at sort of young progressive people and getting them engaged and politically literate. So I talk about everything I want to talk about. I run it by myself. Um, And so it's not like a standard objective news platform. It's not claiming to be objective. It's all about talking about important things and important issues in a way that's digestible, entertaining and accessible. Um, and that people are finding ways to engage and be mobilised in their communities to make change. And I think it's an incredible commentary that you
0: give as well, especially with the humour that you add in with your own inflections and interpretations on situations, especially around things Thank like you. ScoMo
1: and the, you know, nothing. Well, it was like, I, I, to be quite honest, like I say this to people a lot because I'm like I think I prefer to be transparent about this, but in the lead up to the election I was like, if he gets back in, one, it's good for the follower count because the numbers just come in, which is a terrible thing to be thinking about from a business point of view. You're like, oh, it's too easy. But when he got, like, when the Labor government got voted in and we had a change, you know, it was also like, holy fuck, like, sorry, if I, I'm allowed to swear, are I? Go for it. <laughs> holy fuck, like, I can now expand what I'm talking about. Like, I think in pre-election, it was just so driven by the dribble that he came out with every day and then post it, like, actually allowed for me to expand into other news areas. So it's exciting, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, we can touch on actual political issues that we care about. And, you know, that's not only supporting a Labor government, that's calling out bullshit that we don't agree with in that sense as well. But, you know, there's different things that go through it. But I'm, I'm so glad that you're engaging this audience and such a young audience where we've seen specifically with politics, so many people not very engaged, not the most recent election, but the one before that. I think it was the worst outcomes for young people
1: turning up and showing up. And that was the year ScoMo was elected. So Absolutely. And and like just to inject, I think it's important as well that like part of the thing about Cheek that also concerns me, but is in a way exciting is when things are going really wrong and we're sort of going through periods of turmoil, which kind of seems like it's every time at every every minute at the moment, because you know we're going through such unprecedented times. But when things are going wrong, people become more engaged and they become advocates. So in a way, it's an opportunity, but it's also a bit depressing that like platforms like mine are needed only through suffering. So it's like a really weird place to be in a space to exist in.
0: And we did say this the other um, the other day when we were chatting quickly, but I think it's important to highlight how it is to be somebody in this area either as an activist or somebody who's even just posting on social media like yourselves and how real the burnout feels right now.
1: Absolutely. And I think coming into the end of the year, like I don't think that anyone actually acknowledges the way that sort of inherent fatigue that comes with the headlines like, you know, like this year was the federal election and and not even at the start of the year, the middle of the year. And I think that we're detaching completely from... Um, the actual burnout that we feel in that 24-hour news cycle and how relentless it's been, you know, watching what's happened in the US with the, the fall of Roe versus Wade and then looking even at the last week or so with the Lerman trial and those outcomes and, like, every week it's an inquiry. Every week it's a death of a woman uh, at the hands of her intimate partner, you know, and it's like you don't acknowledge that you've got your personal life, you've got your work life, and then you're trying to engage and stay enraged and stay active and you're in that sort of space, and it's exhausting. So I think it's like me trying to manage that entertainment aspect, but also me trying to manage my own health in terms of having to write about that every day as well. Absolutely, and I feel that right now as well. I'm trying to
0: find the energy and I'm trying to keep the momentum going. But it is so difficult, and I think you just touched on it. It's one of the first points that I really want to talk with you probably about today is, you know, in the last 20 days, we've had 10 women in Australia murdered. And, you know, in, in every aspect of me wanting to talk with anybody about this Every activist I know is at their absolute breaking point. This is the worst we've ever seen it. You know, the, the rates of domestic abuse in Australia are consistently put out there as one woman per week or one woman per fortnight. And 20 days and 10 women, that is an absolutely atrocious uptick to see, especially during that period of time primarily being the 16 days of activism against gender violence.
1: Absolutely. And we're also about to head into the Christmas period, which is when those numbers often spike. You know, we've got a lot of family engagement. A lot of people are at home. A lot of people are exposed to intimate partner violence during the next two or so weeks. So we've already exceeded the one woman a week figure that is usually used to explain domestic violence rates in this country. We're already exceeding that. So what's going to happen for the next three or so weeks in terms of that heightened number and that elevation as well? And I think it's like if you put into Google right now, um, you know, women killed by domestic violence in the last X amount of time, or just put in the basic basic phrasing into Google, how many headlines come up? What major publications are covering it? I I literally saw three today when I looked, and they weren't major. It was like the Northern Territory News which came up first. I've you know where are even the progressive publications like the Guardian, who are more trying to channel that progressive side of things, um, I as much as they are often so much better at covering. So often I go looking for it on their sites and I can't find it or it takes extra days and it takes a lot of Instagram and social media activism before it becomes relevant. And that's interesting when social media is informing traditional news. And and not that they're traditional, they're not a Murdoch publication, they are an online masthead, but it's still a really interesting thing to see that, you know, we're talking about this and finding our own news and communicating to each other and that's how it's primarily being translated. You know, what does that say about the level of care and the value that's placed on different lives? You know, what's, what's that say about yeah. the value of a voice and its ability to be heard in our communities? You know, like if a woman's death at the hands of her partner or someone she knows intimately in some way, um can't be reported on in the public. Like if this was, I think it's a Jimmy Barnes quote, he said, you know, if this was terrorism, there'd be an armed guard on every corner. You know, so what does that mean for women who are being murdered in their homes by the people they know and are claiming to love them? And I think that's it. You know,
0: I just mentioned as well to you before we started recording, you know, the two major headlines in Australia at the moment are spinach that is being recalled through Victoria and the rest of Australia because there's some Victorian-based farmers that potentially is, you know, and it is a health issue. It is a public health issue. You have to address that. That's a major trending headline alongside Jeremy Clarkson's misogynistic comments. (laughs) I have had so many people personally just connect with me and say, I don't hear anything about domestic violence victims other than from your page. And I'm intentionally trying to post specifically about these women who have been murdered a week or two after because I want to keep the conversation going and not have it just sit within that immediate news cycle. So I'm Mm -hmm. intentionally a few weeks behind when I'm doing an individual story and I will always do something like say her name because often these women are lost within their own stories. They just become a statistic. But, you know, I was just reading about the most recent woman that we've identified formally as Danielle Finlay-Jones and From what I know from the immediate reporting has been that she was murdered by somebody that she went on a date with. So she went on a date with this man apparently through um, some kind of website or something that they had met and gone on a date together. She wasn't seen again and she's now been found murdered. Now this man also had pending charges against him for strangulation against a former partner. And that as well is something that we need to address. In terms of public health issues and safety, any man who puts his hand around your neck, throat, face, those actions of the the silencing, the immediate silencing that you were doing to somebody in that actions means that you're seven times more likely to murder that person. And that's a public health issue. The fact that this man was out even, or the fact that this man was free to walk and roam the streets is a concern. But secondly, the fact that Daniel, Danielle Finlay-Jones is not trending, but fucking Jeremy Clarkson and Spinach is, is in of itself an absolute atrocity that we should all be ashamed of.
1: Absolutely, and I think that, you know, Chanel Contos actually wrote an excellent piece in The Guardian last week, I think, about um, the sort of uptick and the mainstream nature of choking during sex now and how it's become, you know, And it's usually expressed as part of kink, but it's kind of become more mainstream. And I think the stat was like more than half of women have experienced being choked during sex by a partner. And I think that there is this lack of conversation, and I think that uh, a big thing that we're not covering when we talk about building a culture of consent and sort of development of this new affirmative consent model, the criminalisation of stealth, and when we're talking about the law reform and legislative reform that's sort of reshaping the conversation around consent and consent education in schools, we're sort of not going beyond at the moment. We're sort of at that level where we're just trying to say we need a firm yes. We need a firm, communicative yes of some kind to establish consent. We need to, like, raise the bar in terms of how we're communicating about what's acceptable during sex and what we're seeking in that trusted, secure environment. And obviously I actually don't know the the details of the case yet and what's happened with this woman that's been murdered, but I think that when we're talking about choking and this sort of strangulation and how it leads to often murder, and, you know, when we, like, backtrace through the timeline of events, often strangulation and choking precedes a death, a murder, And I think that there's this conversation to be had around, well, often, and this is what Chanel's piece highlights really well, I think, often women consent to choking on the basis that it provides pleasure for the partner choking them, not that it provides them with pleasure. And we feel this need to normalize these behaviors instead of actually reflecting on whether we're consenting on the basis that we want to engage in that act and that it provides anything for us. And obviously, like, this is a bit of a string, but I think it's an important conversation when we're talking about sex, What we're talking about what's normalised and consensual and safe, trusted sex. Can those actions be trusted trusted acts, you know, without having serious conversations and risk assessments done? And when we're talking about consent and building this culture of safety for women, we need to be speaking out with our friends, with our partners, with anyone we're willing to engage in any sort of relationship with about what's normal, about what's liked, about what's consensual. Um, and that necess- doesn't necessarily mean that that would have prevented that murder if you know that's not in any way shifting blame it's just opening the conversation to is choking even the appropriate word should it be strangulation you know these sorts of conversations are vital at the moment i think
0: and it's interesting that you that you say that as well because non-fatal strangulation is being brought into law in many different states because of this risk that it poses but it's not you know, during sex primarily, I don't think that the conversation around the non-fatal strangulation and the act of choking to silence somebody is making. And it's an interesting thing that you raise because there is that sex side of things where it's not particularly maybe seen as a dangerous thing, but are we not understanding the potential implications of risk that we're potentially allowing to become mainstream through this as well? Because you know, I think of massive activists um, and actual specialists like Laura Richards, and I can't imagine her, and I'm not going to speak for her, but I cannot imagine her saying that strangulation during sex would be something that would be permissed outside of any kind of formal think agreement of some kind, you know. And even in that case, what kind of danger will we placing somebody in? Because think of the power dynamic with primarily men and the Power that they hold over you when they've literally got you around the throat. You know, it's not a difficult thing to choke somebody out. You've seen people be able to do that. And that's where that non fatal strangulation comes in as well. So, you know, we saw it even with the Grace Mullane case in um, New Zealand, where, you know, he had put forward that horrible, rough sex defense when he murdered her and said it just got out of hand. Now, how much of that do we believe and where does it cross the line of? potentially some fun kinky kind of play during sex and become an act that is very much designed to silence somebody and very much putting women's lives in danger and is there a line between them or is it just something we need to
1: denormalize absolutely and like i wrote a piece this is and this is where it gets really complicated for me in terms of developing a sort of sophisticated argument around these topics because I wrote a piece for InStyle, um, Australia's Digital December issue, and it was around the relationship between submissive sex and feminism. And my argument to the, to the end of the day, what I will go to my grave arguing is that if you are in a safe, secure, trusted partnership and you are consenting and having really clear communication about what both of you are seeking, do what you want. It's not my business and I'm not here to shame or judge. But again, I think it comes back to that element that Chanel talks about, which is, are we agreeing and consenting to things on the basis that we're trying to please the other party as opposed to providing pleasure for us? And what has taught us, like at at its foundations, what has taught us that choking during sex and that deprivation of breathing literally is pleasurable? Yes, there are studies into that. I'm not really going to get into it. I think what's important is Mainstream pornography has taught us that these sorts of power dynamics and these sorts of actions are normal and they're not. It's an sort of like an impossibly managed risk. Like I don't know situations where you can safely engage in that unless you've had clear communication beforehand. So yeah. basically I just, I think it's a, it's a really deep conversation to be having around how we manage all of these ideas. And when we're building this culture of consent, we're only at the foundational level. How do we then safely build up and develop these like? Hell- Healthy, robust conversations around what good sex looks like that benefits both parties at all times.
0: Yeah. And this is why consent is not just a black and white thing. And, you know, I always I don't like it when people say, you know, yes means yes as well, because yes can can be coerced. There can be different things at play here. There can be physical intimidation, there can be a previous history of sexual abuse, there can be so many things at play that don't make everything completely one or the other. And I think that's where these robust conversations come in because you can be consenting to something in a very safe way with somebody that you can completely trust, and then you can also be, you know, somebody who's got a propensity for violence who's not going to do this and then really hurt somebody or kill them. Or this is going to be the precursor to them being domestic abusers and coercive controllers and using that as a further means to control and denigrate through that act of non-fatal strangulation and then potentially
1: the murder of a woman. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head, honestly. I don't even have anything better that I can say to that. You're absolutely right.
0: But it is, it it, it is, and it, it comes back to it that this, again, is not the conversation that we're having. We're having conversations about Jeremy Clarkson. But it is there, yes. and I do want to raise it. It's an important topic to cover, this mainstream misogyny, You know, Jeremy Clarkson has made the statements that he would like to see Meghan Markle um, paraded naked down the streets with excrement thrown at her, um, with shame being screamed, which is quite a famous scene from the Game of Thrones series, and it's not in any way funny or okay. And he's been called out pretty quickly
1: for it. I think now there's up to 12,000 complaints to the national regulator in the UK. Um, And I think it's interesting because... A few people in the comments on an article that I wrote about this uh, yesterday sort of said, like, oh, it's a Game of Thrones reference, and they weren't necessarily excusing what he said on that basis, but it's really interesting because I actually have never seen Game of Thrones, so I'm not across this reference, but it doesn't matter. And I think that's such an interesting like qualifier or sort of mitigator that comes up is like it was a film reference. Well, I don't really give a fuck what it was, to be honest, you know, and I think that's a that's a huge part of the conversation. It's also like I think a lot of the times in the comment sections on these pieces that are actively pointing out um, what was wrong with his commentary. A lot of people say, I don't like Meghan and Harry, but or I don't feel anything towards the royal family. But why does that matter? Why do you need to lead with that? Why do you need to insert any emotional personal view about this person when we're looking at violence and misogyny in action? At the end of the day, any emotion or commentary you're providing around this person is actually used to mitigate what's been said against them. And I think what's important is it doesn't matter. You don't need to add that. What we're looking at here, regardless of the other person, is someone who is inciting and encouraging and authorising violence and a publication that is, Legitimizing that by publishing it to a popular masthead, knowing that it would get millions of clicks on the basis that it was aggressive and it was violent. And it was a sexualized, perverse fantasy. And it was focused around the public humiliation of a woman. And I think that what we need to look at is not often do we actually examine, and it might, it might be impossible to ever examine the connection between what the media publishes, the influence on the audience and the, the real life outcomes. And I think my point is, you know, Meghan Markle has every reason to be afraid of the media. And and Jeremy Clarkson's views vindicate everything that she is saying, right, on this docuseries and and, and everything in, in the time before that. But I think that what the focus here is, is that what Jeremy's done will never really be held to true account. He will not lose his career. Cancel culture will not affect him. And what is what are the consequences or accountability forms for the Murdoch publication, The Sun, that published this? And when we have women being murdered in the UK, it's one every three days. Here at the moment, as we said, it's 10 women in the last 20 days. What is the connection between thousands of articles that sort of demonise and hate women published every day worldwide and what happens in our homes? what is that connection? Where is that accountability? Will we ever get it? And what are the steps to overcoming that and actually holding these publications accountable for the irresponsible publishing they're doing? At the end of the day, it's not only misogynistic, it's the encouragement of violence that should not be protected by free speech. And what he's done is quite frankly fucked. There's no two ways about it. And his apology was even more pathetic. It wasn't an apology. It was a whoops. And that's just horrific to me the non-apology. And it's the
0: standard, didn't know, sorry, you know, and I can see it if there is some kind of accountability, then the argument coming back will be it's cancel culture. And, you know, where did free speech go? And it's the same tropes that you see, you know, tied out over and over again. But you're exactly right, there won't be any repercussions for any of this. And the scary thing is that this would have gone through multiple people, this would have gone through editing it himself multiple times, a stream of consciousness, it would have gone to an editor. It. It would have gone to somebody else who would have written the title that published it. This would have gone through multiple people on multiple levels that went, this is a good idea, this doesn't incite violence, or it does incite violence, and we personally don't give a fuck about Meghan Markle and her family's safety or the other women that these misogynistic views impact. And it should be treated as a hate crime. Um, and I've seen a few people posting about that. And I think that it's incredible, like Dr. Proudman, who I follow, and she's a wonderful uh, feminist barrister from the UK, is calling it, how is this not being treated as a hate crime? Because it is inciting violence
1: against women. Absolutely. And and, and this is the thing, it's it's like, with with people, I like think the, the non-apology, the existence of the non-apology. And I think that Oftentimes what we see when these sort of articles come out is any response, any click that you give him, other people say, why would you do that? Why would you feed into it? And I make a big point about this because I think that when we're critiquing, you know, the racist views of Pauline Hanson, when we're calling out Jeremy Clarks and inciting violence against a woman and having these perverse sexual fantasies of her public humiliation, there is no choice but to speak out. To stay silent is, in a sense, to be complicit and to engage in bystander behaviour, And I think people saying like, just leave it alone. That's not helpful. All that says is there's not going to be pushback or fight back, you know? And we saw it earlier in the year as well with like the Andrew Tate sort of saga where he sort of became vile on TikTok and his messaging was really reaching young boys. And again, people sort of attacking me saying like, you speaking about these issues is only fueling the fire. Within a week, he was off social media. And it's like, 12,000 complaints to the UK regulator of media. You know, that has resulted in the shittest apology of all time. But surely it's sending a clear message that people are not going to accept that. You know, what does that say to advertisers? What does that say to readership? You know, I think that's important always. And I think that Jeremy Clarkson won't be changed. I think it's incredible that his daughter came out and spoke out against him. That was, that is something that I just commend so wholeheartedly. He's not going to change. I don't think he's going to be changed. And I think the fact that he's come out as a, oh, that was a, cl- he literally referred to the reference, the Game of Thrones reference as clumsy, not clumsy. And I totally agree with you. Whenever I see headlines like this and I think, how many hands did that pass through that thought that was a great idea? It's actually disgusting. And it, it I mean, again, people write off the tabloids, but at the end of the day, they get clicks. And it's important to always hold them to account for that reason. Because every single person that sees the messaging that is an anti what he's done adds a thought. It plants a seed. It creates some sort of conversation. I think if that's all we've got, we have to use it. There's always my view on these topics. 100%. And this is where, as
0: well, people need to remember that by being neutral, you're choosing the side of the oppressor. And I think that's just one important thing. But also the crime is a social construct. So, Every bit of activism that you do, every time the rubber meets the road, every time that protests come out, this is, again, another issue around the right to protest being in danger. That's not okay. Where we had the the woman in New South Wales who was put in jail for protesting, yet we've got sex offenders not being put to jail or being held to account at all. And this is the issue, but the reason that it is so important for people to even do as little as donate $5 to an organisation that is doing right by certain members of the community, um, reposting things, commenting on things, getting loud about things, getting behind and saying that this isn't acceptable because that's what forces the change. An organisation like Murdoch Media is not going to change in any way unless there is enough push for them to do so, and that has to be, you know, legal or financial. It's not going to be because it's the right thing to do.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, as the as our generation steps forward, there is going to be further and further pushback against them. And not only that, but I think we're the ones having powerful conversations with the generations that do subscribe and do engage and are their readership. Not saying that I can convince my grandparents necessarily, but saying that every time someone has a conversation, shares a post, engages with anyone about this and has that interaction, it does something. It has impact, and I think we cannot undermine those individual voices. It's not just about the post. you know. It's not just about someone with a platform. It's about how you raise your own voice and develop your own insights and arguments so that you can articulate that in conversation with others, and I think that that's so undervalued, and I don't think people see their personal power in advocacy, and I think that that's always what I'm trying to do is position people to say, here are the words if you can't find them, and also navigate in relation to this. Don't take my word necessarily, but find your own position in relation to this. And just have the conversation. Find your voice in this somewhere, and that's, that is your power. And I think that we are constantly undermining that. And I think that it's these moments that show people that they can have those conversations because the response I've seen to this piece in particular has been huge. Absolutely. And
0: I think there are a lot of people that thought that it was quite, it's quite grabbing. And there's a lot of people that love Jeremy Clarkson, my parents included Top Gear, one of the favorite shows of all time. So, Mm. you know, to have somebody that people of that generation specifically also see as, you know, one of the best comedic people or television personalities for such a large span of time as well, a lot of them aren't getting behind them like they have with other people before. And I think it's, It is great to see, but you're right, it's generating a discussion. And the key point for me out of all of this is that Meghan Markle specifically has not done anything wrong. You know, she's not raped a child, for example, and used taxpayer money to pay it back and stop the investigation (laughs) happening.
1: Wow, that is an oddly specific example.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you've got somebody (laughs) making statements like that bullshit when you've got a child rapist that's paying, Mm. using taxpayers' money back, you know, a victim to silence her, I think it is an incredible miscalculation by the public to have this hatred towards a woman who's really done fuck all, but bar existing as a woman in this world, bar not being completely subservient to the monarchy, she has done nothing wrong in my eyes. I mean, I don't know, but, you know, you've got a child rapist um, and a man who's literally admitted to having a good relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, who's a child sex offender and sex trafficker, not being held to anywhere near the same account.
1: Yeah, and I think that it's, uh, I think something we spoke about before we started recording was that when it comes to like Meghan Markle, people will say like, there's just something about her. You know, there's just, I just have this feeling that I I don't like her. And that's what tends to happen with women. And I'm not saying it's women formulas, because I'm saying it's women, men, men everyone forming those views against women. You do not hear that said about men in the same context without justification unless there is some story. And even when they've raped a child, it's not necessarily going to be the commentary. Um, And I think that it's interesting because with someone like Prince Andrew, it's like it was innocent until proven guilty, uh, due process, all the all the, the common phrases we hear. And, yes, now it might be like, you know, the words to describe men, like that might be grub or something. But with Meghan Markle, no, it's she should be paraded around the streets naked and shit should be thrown at her. Like the the level of vitriol and the venom and this just pure hatred and misogynistic and um, racial, It's and, and this is the thing, people all too often leave out the racial element. She's a black woman. The comments clearly within the royal family for a period of time were about the bloodline, you know. It's a disgrace. And I think that, you know, my my opinions on monarchy and things aren't really relevant. My opinions about Meghan Markle and Harry aren't relevant. It doesn't matter. I think the comparison is necessary because it's about how the media and the public are treating a black woman in the spotlight, right? And that's that's a vital conversation versus someone within that family who exists as a white man in the upper echelons of power and society who will never be held to true account for his actions. Those are, those are important conversations to have. Um, but I think that we're never willing to acknowledge this sort of like unjustified um, but also unencumbered hatred that's sort of projected at her, you, and the thing is, is that, you you know, your grandma is the kind of person that will say, I just, there's something about it that I don't like before flipping open, you know, uh, turning on Sky News or reading Andrew Bolt's latest column and you go, oh, I wonder why that is. You know, where is that critical thought and awareness to reflect on the influence that our media has on us? I think that is something that is so underrated is people have this belief, and it's never-ending that they're not influenced by what they what they consume. And that is just such a lie. I mean, it affects us. I'm a progressive person that consumes a lot of progressive media. That's a fault of mine. I probably don't engage enough with things outside of my own echo chamber. But it's about being honest about those things, and it's about actually coming to terms with the fact that your view is skewed. And not many people do that. That's the very bare minimum that we can do in this conversation is say, my opinion of her isn't relevant. Here's what's been said, no matter what I think of her, that is fucked.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's having that reflection and and noticing the trends over time. Through most people's lifetime, they're going to remember at least now the ditch the witch against Um, Julia Gillard, and how she was portrayed in the media and how nobody really cared about the policies that she put forward. They just didn't like her, and that she, you know, had all of these wonderful achievements in her term as Prime Minister, but, you know, what she was wearing and the clothes and the way that she put herself forward and her haircut was much more important. And then you look at other things, like how Brittany Higgins has been treated in the media, how Grace Tame has been treated in the media, how other women throughout history and throughout different cultures have been treated in the media. Amber Heard, you know, there are so many people and whether you agree or disagree or, you know, are uninformed on the process, what there is is a commonality between all of these things. And it is a misogyny and a hatred of women and men are not held to that same account. And other women, sadly specifically are also coming along with it but it is one of those things as well which I think is like a another trickle of misogyny and it's not just the unlearning of misogyny that we all need to do and the self-reflection that we need to do but the biggest call out is oh but a woman said this therefore it's completely fine so I don't know how to explain that maybe a little bit better. A woman has supported Prince Andrew or a woman also hates Meghan Markle or a group of women or a feminist organisation that is supposedly feminist supports the hatred of Amber Heard or a former sexual assault victim hates Amber Heard. Therefore, that's everybody else's justification to treat them like absolute shit. And while it's only been called out like this for Meghan Markle, the symbolism of the whole thing is that they've all been paraded and they've all had shit thrown at them. And that's literally what the collective media has done to these women. When people say that misogyny doesn't exist in society anymore,
1: I I don't understand where that comes from anymore. I agree. And I think that, you know, It again, it comes back to this, like, lack of accountability for headlines. Like, I think that there has been a change, but you know, in the last 18 months, especially with the Me Too movement. And I think that that's probably why, um, people are so disillusioned with the system, the, both the criminal justice system, but also with our political system over the last 18 months, seeing the way that the Lerman trial has unfolded, considering that Brittany Higgins really was one of the sort of primary catalysts for Me Too entering this country and seeing the sort of process has sort of broken a lot of people and broken us. I think in the sense that it's just a reminder that we, you know, we've got this wave of legislative change and these things happening and it just sort of brings you straight back down to earth that misogyny is rampant and it's real and the media can reinforce that narrative and the public just, you know, it's like flies to honey, you know, it's just like it goes straight back. And I think that no matter, how, it's hard because we feel like we're running and running and running towards change, and then you just immediately feel tripped. You like it's like that, you know, in a dream when you 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 know can't run anymore, your legs are gone. You know, you just feel that sort of the wind being taken out of your sails. I think, and that's why so so many people are so exhausted as well because we're desperately screaming to be heard and. It's interesting because I think the thing to be noted and it's always something I come back to is that men feel like us asking to be acknowledged and recognized and for rape culture and misogyny to be sort of acknowledge, especially in this country, that it has to mean a direct attack and accusation of them being rapists. And that's not it at all. I think that this conversation surrounds the need for us to also say, patriarchy affects you and you suffer at the hands of it as well. And when I say to you, this is what happened to me, I'm not saying you as a man are responsible for that, but I'm asking to be heard. I'm asking to be acknowledged. And I'm asking you to sit in my shoes for a second and see what I see and what I experience every day, you know, When you say, I walk with my keys between my fingers to my car, it's like, well, what do you want me to do about that? And it's like, I want you to hear my experience because you've never done that, have you? And it's not saying you know, you're responsible for that as a man, that you have this duty and obligation as a man and all men are are represented by you. That's not it at all. The conversation always comes back to just feeling heard and seen. And I think that's also the feeling that survivors have when they disclose to a friend. If it's a woman, they don't necessarily say, you know, we're prosecuting, I need you to so like so deeply affirm everything I'm saying. I need to be heard. I need to be seen. I need you to share in my grief. I need you to share in my story and my pain. And that's too much for people. That's too much for so many people who are like, whoa. And it was really interesting in um, a Cheek podcast, we had this second podcast by someone named Hannah Kinder who's brilliant, and she interviewed Jess Hill. And one of the things that Jess Hill said that I thought, I've never thought about that before – is she said, like, often it's so easy for society to side with perpetrators because all they ask for is your silence. They ask for your silence and for you to forget. And victim survivors ask for so much more because they ask for us to hear and feel and act. And to so many in our society, that's too much to ask. And that just struck me. Because I think that that's how so many people, and especially men who feel so attacked by this sort of raising of awareness and these sort of cries for change, is that they feel like it's just easier to be silent and to forget and just to keep going the way we've been going. And being asked to act and to speak up and to challenge the status quo is too scary and it's too much and easy and normal and what we've been doing has benefited them. But it's also undermined them and they've also suffered at the hands of it. I think it's about having a conversation that looks more like, We're all suffering under this, us more than you, but it's about having the conversation. That was a very long-winded answer, but I hope it was decent.
0: (laughs) No, I think it's important as well. And like you're saying, it is impacting them. You know, male suicide rates are so high and, you know, the man cave, and I think that you've actually done a discussion with the man cave and the way that they speak to young men about how they feel and the gap between masculinity and themselves and societal beliefs These are all things that patriarchy instills in all of us from end to end. This isn't patriarchy, isn't just men having power over women. It's the entire institution of everything that sits underneath it. And people need to understand that it impacts all of us. And it's not just women's safety. It's men's mental health. It's men being okay in their bodies as well. We're not sitting here advocating saying like just saying, sit the fuck down. We're saying, come with us on this journey I'll stand by you when we're talking about male mental health, but I want you to stand next to me when I literally am walking down the street at night or screaming at the top of my lungs in a protest because I'm worried that I'm going to be one of the next women who's been murdered every two days for the last 20 days. Like every other day a woman has been brutally murdered by somebody. That is just for us to not see that as what that is and for people to only see that as a statistic is, is so shocking that that's not shocking.
1: Absolutely, and I think that often the arguments that come back are these what-about-isms and it's this idea that, you know, if we say, well, a woman is being murdered every so-and-so, it's like what about men who are domestically abused or what about men's mental health or what about men are more, uh, more likely to be murdered than women and, and men are more likely to be in prison than women. And I think it comes back to why is that? Why is that? It's men usually perpetrating violence against men. It's the expectations that men put on each other under a system of patriarchy that enforces and sort of leads to poor mental health outcomes. And I'm not saying it's individuals' fault, but I'm saying we're existing under a system that oppresses both sides and drives these narratives of masculinity that are inherently toxic. How do we reform and look at masculinity through a different lens? How do we discuss, you know, um, that And I also think that these whataboutisms, you know, this idea of, well, what about men who are domestically abused by women? Absolutely. Of course that exists. But in this conversation, we need to look at the epidemic of violence and death in this country, which primarily affects women and and all marginalized groups. And I think that these whataboutisms, you know, like, it's like, especially with Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, those sorts of things, I think comes back to, well, you know, when we're donating to a charity for breast cancer, no one says, well, what about brain cancer? You know, why can't this issue take the forefront? Why can't we elevate and amplify one thing and say this person is asking to be heard and why do you need to make it inherently about you? You know, and I think that it's so interesting because this idea, like it's a famous quote, you know, this idea of, equality to the privileged feels like oppression because they have to give up some of their power in order for it to be taken by others to equalise the playing field. And that is such a – it is a difficult thing to come to terms with when you've retained it and had it for so long. And suddenly when it's being grappled, you know, and it's it's a power struggle, you can see how these awful narratives come out and these awful justifications. And I think that what it results in is is this sort of death of healthy discussion in public spaces and forums. We've kind of lost the ability to engage in moral discussions without it being deeply offensive, misogynistic, racist, bigoted, you know, transphobic, homophobic. Oh, it's it's exhausting even talking about it. You know, we're both getting worked up. It's like it's, it's so exciting to connect with that rage and sort of articulate and have these important discussions, but it also leaves you feeling, as we said, burnt out where you're like what to do, what to do in the face of so much, you know, and I it, sometimes you just don't know what to do. We can have these conversations to the nth degree, but what is the change, what is the reform, and what does progress look like in these spaces?
0: Yeah, and I think it's an interesting thing, and I've had quite a lot of people speaking to me and and some of them actually are quite high profile people who have been speaking to me quietly and asking things like what can I do and to those people specifically I would say use your platform I don't know what it would say to to a brand that sponsors you that might have an issue with you reposting something about sexual violence and if that's the case I don't know what kind of leverage somebody in that position might have but I think as well what we need to Identify is that if you are interested in this, if you are interested in 10 women in 20 days being a problem, and if you're not okay with that, then engage with things like this, engage with different activist channels on your social media platforms, subscribe to different news organizations that are providing information that isn't Murdoch media, maybe. Do different things like that. Go and speak to a local activist and say, what can I do? Even if it's just reposting to your Instagram feed, if it's signing a petition, if it's donating five bucks in a GoFundMe, if it is getting your feet on the ground or writing a letter to your local MP, these are all mostly free things that you can do that every single person listening to this has a sway in. And when I come back to it and I say crime is a social construct, we set the scene. And the more people that show up that are outraged about the fact that nobody's talking about 10 women dying at the hands of primarily men in 20 days in Australia, that, that that's pretty fucked up. Australia has this underlying suburban culture that is inherently seen as we're not dangerous. We're not like America. We're not like that. We don't have guns here anymore. We're a safe country. And It's a falsehood when you put statistics like that, but it's still not reaching people. And I will say that these 10 women who have been murdered, most of them, there are men in custody, primarily intimate partners or former intimate partners that have done these actions in very graphic and gruesome ways. And they're going to leave children behind. They're going to leave families behind. They're going to leave a ripple effect on so much of community life because they've chosen to murder somebody and you know there are some out of that 10 that we don't know the answers to yet one man is still at large though. you know it is a collective again public health issue it's an epidemic it's a crisis
1: Absolutely. And I think it's, it's Cheryl Moody. She does, she basically does the count. She is the, um, the journalist and researcher who sort of, I would recommend everyone follow her account because she's the one that keeps track of these numbers. And she's where I get all of my information from as well in re- red Heart to keeping Foundation. up with the numbers. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, and that's the thing, it, it's, it's so strange that I find out the numbers through an Instagram account, you know, coming back to what you've said, like I think that there's, there's no media coverage, there's no adequate media coverage, and it's, as you said, you know, these are stats that people should be sharing and why aren't they getting through? Why isn't one woman a week getting through to people, you know? And I think it's because when you can't see it, you don't understand it. And I think that a lot of people find it difficult to come to terms with the, what domestic abuse looks like, what domestic and family violence looks like in the home, um, and they are they fail to recognise or they blame the woman for not leaving when we really know that she's just as much at risk if she leaves that relationship as well. So I think that, you know, I would also recommend uh, Jess Hill's book, See What You Made Me Do. It has informed almost everything I know about domestic and family violence, it's one of the best, thing, best books I've ever read. I think that it comes back to, like, people feel that in the suburban culture that they can ignore that these murders are happening within homes because it's it's not a public gruesome act. And when it's between a couple, there's some sort of blame that people feel they can shift. And that's just not the case because no one, no one, no one, no one should be afraid to be in their own home at night. And I just don't – it's so interesting that the Australian public so so – so often find it so difficult to come to terms with what these situations look like and that they're not the fault of the victim. You know, we need to be having these broader conversations about the complexities of what this can look like. Um, and it's at the beginning. It can be, you know, what, what coercive control looks like in the home, in relationships, what financial, emotional, psychological abuse looks like and how it develops over time. And these are really complex topics, but we need to talk about them now more than ever.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Absolutely. And it just reminds me of, as well, a few years ago, sadly, Patrick Cronin was murdered um, near my hometown in suburban Melbourne. And he was hit in the back of the head by a man in a in a bar brawl, And that really brought an end to a massive culture change. We changed the word from king hit to coward punch. We changed everything that occurred around that. We changed the laws around that. There was so much campaigning around that to stop men from hitting them each other in the back of the head or from getting into stupid fights because people were dying senselessly. And I would never want to draw away from that. And that's another discussion that you and I have had as well. I'm never drawing away from that. His death was an absolute tragedy, and the the, the family that the, the the Pat Cronin Foundation has done and what they've been able to do is absolutely astounding. How do we get that level of care and change where it turns from being, you know, changing that language from the king hit to the coward punch? How do we change that language to be more informative, to be more? Um, invested to give people the the understanding that changing things like this can enforce
1: societal and social change. And also, I think we mentioned this briefly in our chat last week, and it's a really difficult topic and it's really complicated, but the murder in Queensland of the two police officers and the, the third by the other, the additional person as well. So three people were murdered last week in Queensland. And those conversations, what occurred there was everywhere in this country. It was at the top of every news website. It was the front page of every newspaper. And it was in every office. It was in every home being conversed about. You know, I drove past, I live in Brisbane, and I drove past You know, signs that were um, sort of in acknowledgement of the fallen, and it was literally outside Suncorp Stadium. And driving past that, it's not that I ever wanted to track from what occurred because everyone should feel safe at work, and it is a horrific murder that's taken place. But... I think it's important to contrast the coverage, you know, when one woman is dying each week and we have that sort of, you know, not being reported at all and we, we can't name that, we, we can't identify them often. And, and sometimes it's impossible to identify them and they're not named. But how many, you know, how many people can the average member of the public name that's a woman that's lost her life to domestic violence this year versus what kind of coverage did we see of these police officers last week? And actually what was the contrast between the deaths of the police officer and the third person that wasn't a police officer? And I think those are conversations to be had. And it's not, it's not undermining their deaths. It's not trying to detract from that. It's saying how do we value different stories? How do we value different tragedies? How do we value different voices and different lives? And I think that is the conversation to be had. Why? Are these conversations something that are constantly elevated and front page, first headline? And then the women who die in their homes aren't talked about at all. So I think that, like, again, the contrast is so vital. And just speaking out and reminding people of the stats and constantly communicating that is so vital as well.
0: It is important. And I like that you've reiterated that again. We're not saying that in a detraction in any way. And this is what the Gabby Petito family has done significantly with trying to raise awareness for missing and Indigenous um, women, Black and Indigenous women, because they could see the complete dichotomy of response that was seen worldwide for Gabby Petito and how these missing and endangered, so the Black and Indigenous women um, communities are coming back and being like missing white woman syndrome. And, you know, it's never to detract away from that, but you know, it's been able to draw so much attention. It's been able to say we actually have to actively try and do this. And, again, it is up to society to set the standard. If we're not happy that this isn't being reported against, then we have to do the groundswell and build it from the bottom up. We can't expect people who inherently have this misogyny potentially that are in charge of reporting, who have this old-school view set where police officers are more valued in society than women in their homes then we've got a problem that we need to raise up because I don't know what it would do to make a difference if the Prime Minister gave an address at the mer- the time that we, it was acknowledged that a woman was murdered every week. And you can't convince me that that tragedy is more important than any of the other ones because these are all preventable deaths in many ways, especially intimate partner violence. And I think it's just a, a really good narrative on the structures and systems and for people to be able to self-reflect on what they play as a part
1: of that as well. Absolutely. And I think it's always that police are um, held to this sort of elevated standard as a sort of protectors in our community. And I think that it's interesting because, you know, a few cheek followers in this week, someone asked me, um, like, can we critique the Queensland Police Force following the inquiry um, into Queensland Police responses to domestic violence while also acknowledging the murder of these two officers? Well, of course we can. You know, and I think that it's about the complexity of the conversation. You know, two things can exist at once. Two things can be true at once. You know, it can be awful that these people have died, but we can also still hold the Queensland Police Force to account for, you know, those deep, sexist, racist, misogynistic views, you know, the, the deep bigotry, the deep homophobia. Um and I think that something still needs to change, you know, we're not going to ignore that or undermine that or allow it to go away because there's been a tragedy. And I think that it's about like we need to sort of become more sophisticated in our ability to converse about these things in healthy ways. And again, it's not about detracting from a death, it's about saying, well, hang on, let's just like, let's just bring this all onto the table and examine it and ha- actually provide an informed discussion and actually actually engage with the with the with the topics and with the substance of what we're talking about. And you're absolutely right. I think that it comes back to like what lives are considered more valuable and what voices are heard and promoted by different publications. And it, again, it sort of centrally comes back to the media landscape in this country being saturated by two main sources, which is Murdoch and Fairfax. So I think that it's, it's, a, it's a complex issue. And you know what? At the same time, it's not the public's fault that we are holding these values because we're, they're imposed on us by what we consume. And that's... It is our responsibility to take some agency and seek independent sources, but we know that people don't do that, so what's the next step? What's the next step to having these conversations and to diversifying our media as well?
0: Yeah, and it's an interesting topic to go over, Um, and I think, yeah, it's just a very productive conversation to have around the aspect as well that, you know, I think it was 41% of um, people with an apprehended violence order against them for intimate partner violence in Queensland are breaching those orders and, you know, women in domestic violence situations um, are being let down by, you know, a lack of police interaction. And you're right to be able to call that out and have discussions about police failings and how we need to improve to save women's lives shouldn't detract from the fact that three people were shot. Even just the fact that people were shot on a property in and of itself is very distressing because we haven't had a shooting like that, you know, probably since Port Arthur, really. To have that even into the vernacular is quite scary. So I understand that the landscape and the nature of the crime was very different, but you're right; it is just about calling it out. And one of the recent books that I've been reading, um, I should grab it. It's by Jennifer Robinson and Kina Yashida called
1: How oh, Many, How More, Many women? More Women? Yes, I ordered it for myself. Yeah. I, I've already read it, but I didn't have it, and I ordered it for myself for Christmas, so I to read it again because i was <laughs> like a nerd. It was yeah, really good. So I've-
0: I've got like little coloured tabs all the way through it and I'm highlighting different things. Um, But it is an interesting read and if you are listening to this and you are interested in becoming um a little bit more aware, I guess, of the, the legal system and the way that things work, I think it's a really great resource. Like you said as well with Jess Hill, See What You Made Me Do, and that's probably my favourite book of all time because it makes domestic violence, domestic abuse and coercive control very understandable and accessible to the layperson. And he, she's just an incredible writer. The reason that she's she is who she is is because she is just so wonderful in her writing style and her ability to convey very complex things in a very digestible way.
1: Absolutely. Um, I totally agree. Except I couldn't get through 50 pages without crying, so I'd have to keep putting it down because I was like, that's awful. Every case study, I was just, I was like, this is brilliant. I, I want to keep reading, but I need Why did she do this? <laughs> I know. Oh.
0: But I will say um, one of the stats that I did pull out of um, Jennifer and Kena's book was that in Australia, the UK, um, and America, only fourteen percent of victim survivors of victims of sexual assault report to the police. And I think we're talking about Queensland. We're talking about having some accountability for the authorities that are in place over there. And I wanted to call that out specifically because one thing we haven't discussed yet is um, the commissioner. Walter Sofranoff's investigation and inquiry into the DNA debacle, we will call, um, that was called out and highlighted through the Australian's investigation with Headley Thomas um, in the podcast called Shandy's Story. So Shandy Blackburn was a young woman who was murdered in Mackay in Queensland. To summarise it very quickly, um, there was a, a key person of interest, that person had um, some evidence against them but there was some very obvious failings in the dna analysis that was done that came out through the shandy story podcast so basically Headley thomas had called somebody named dr kirsty Wright and said can you help me make sense of this dna information that he was able to get through freedom of information and she was reading it basically going what the actual fuck is going on here So, for example, one of the things I think was there was a swab of her blood that she had been stabbed on the street and subsequently died in hospital from her wounds. There was a swab of the fresh pool of blood that was taken from the street side where she was murdered. And that came back after a DNA test at the lab in question, which is the only DNA testing lab in Queensland. And that came out as no DNA detected. Now, for anybody who's even watched CSI or has any <laughs> understanding of DNA, um, a fresh pool of blood should be should be coming back with a large sum of DNA. That's not trace level DNA, that that's a lot of DNA that should be coming back from that. The inquiry went into a massive review into the practices of the lab. To summarize, if I can do it quickly, would be there are processes that were in place that don't meet nationwide standards. Basically, when somebody does a DNA test, there's a solution that's put into um, a test tube, so you'll see them do a swab. They'll put a solution in there. They'll shake it up, basically, and DNA will come out. For a secondary test to be done, which is where the extraction of the profile comes from, and I might get some of this wrong. I'm trying to go back to my um, science days. (laughs) Um, When the extraction of that comes down to there is a level that of DNA that is required in some states and there is a level of DNA that is much higher that was required to have a DNA profile pulled out in Queensland. So basically what it was meaning was they weren't testing or further testing a number of samples because it didn't meet this very high threshold. So they're basically saying there's not enough DNA here, we're not going to proceed with further testing. The subsequent um, issues with that is most of the time you actually can, or a lot of the time you can get a DNA profile from that. So over the last six years, the investigation saw that there have been thousands and thousands of major crimes and sexual assault crimes that have wielded responses that say no DNA detected, or that they say insufficient DNA for further processing. That comes back to you as a victim of crime who has come in and said, I was sexually assaulted. Here's what I've got they come back and say no DNA detected. I think what Headley Thomas also reported on the other day was that, sorry, it's up to the police to do the investigation. They hand it over and then it's important because the prosecutor's job is to make that, you know, conviction stick and to build the case. Most prosecutors in Queensland weren't aware that if it came back as no DNA detected or if it came back with this result, that there was a chance that DNA could be extracted. So, You've got multiple failings for victims of crime that are coming forward here, and what subsequently it means is a number of people in Queensland who have been sexually assaulted or have gone through major crimes will have not had an adequate DNA analysis completed, might might have had an incorrect analysis completed where there's a mixture of profiles. And then the third thing that's quite scary as well is there could be people who are in prison who shouldn't be. And that's not because potentially they're getting the wrong profile. That would be because potentially exculpatory evidence saying that this person actually wasn't the person that committed this crime. That wasn't submitted or that wasn't available at the time. So there is potentially evidence saying that this person is, is, is innocent, um, sitting somewhere in a lab that hasn't been processed adequately. And I think what it's ended up in is a $95 million recommendation and review. Um, Finally, I think Anastasia Palaszczuk has come forward and said that she does want to do a massive change, and I think we will see that happen. But I guess it's an important thing to talk about when we reference the police, the community, the everything. How, why isn't this the headline news that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of criminal cases that are in jeopardy right
1: now? Um, I think it comes back to this thing where often these issues are overly complex um, so that they the public are kept at arm's length and i think that while this has been reported on and you you know you can see articles and, and coverage of it in most major publications I think it comes back to this thing where, you know, when we see like something like the Britney Higgins um, and Bruce Lerman trial and I see, I just, I was guilty of it. I said, Brittany Higgins first, look at me go. I'm the one who's calling all these other fuckwits out for it. And I just did it. When we see that, you know, we see this end stage where someone's mental health is so deeply implicated that to proceed to trial and retry him is a, a threat or a risk an inappropriate and sort of, um, Substantial risk to her life, and that they can't pursue. And I think at that point, people recognise the human element. But when we look at when we look at the system and how it functions and interrelates, I think that people are sort of lost in what this means. And it's interesting because usually, I think that when it comes to DNA, and you know, people love a bit of law and order and S- and CSI. So I'm actually surprised people aren't as interested as they should be in this story. Um, but it's interesting because when it comes back to you know, especially me covering the Lerman trial. I really thought that one of the most substantial pieces of that puzzle was that the, you know, the DPP, Shane Drumgold, in the ACT, he came out and said, you know, he penned this letter to the ACT chief of police prior to the conclusion of the trial and said that he had grave concerns about the way police had in- investigated, that they had cited, aligned themselves with the defence, and that he had genuine concerns about the integrity of what had occurred and that he was, you know, seeking an inquiry to look into it. And people were really engaged with the side of things that was Britney can't go forward with this. And it's been such an awful thing for her mental health. And I get it because that's a very human thing that survivors can just, and, and any member of the public really should be able to attach to and go, holy fuck. Right. But when it gets into this relationship between investigation, evidence, evidence, prosecution, I think that people start to sort of become overwhelmed by the complexities of the criminal justice system. And I get why. It's made complex to keep us away, to keep us confused, that so that when someone tries to engage in that process to make a complaint, to sit on a jury, it's an intimidating one. You know, it's an intimidating one and people don't feel like they're welcome there. And it makes it easier for these sort of things to happen because people don't feel like they're being heard and they don't feel like they have the understanding to engage with it in a meaningful way. And it means that people that are either complainants that have are re-traumatised by that system and people who are maybe accused perpetrators but are from marginalised backgrounds and have had a really rough time and really need assistance, both of those people are really vulnerable to that system and can't engage with it in ways that are meaningful for them, right? And so what it means is that we have issues like this that are swept under the rug for years. So this, you know, this um, Walter Sofrenov's inquiry and the results of that inquiry, I know that the Palaszczuk government said they were going to implement every recommendation, which I think was like 123 or something. And she's also – Shannon Fentiman, the Queensland Attorney General, has also come out and said that they're going to review and and propose – um, new double jeopardy laws, which basically I, mean, I think a lot of people know double jeopardy as like a famous one, a famous movie, great film. Um, but essentially it's this concept that you cannot be retried for the same crime twice. And not, and, and I, when I explain this on cheap people, like, so if you murder two people, you can only be charged for one. No, that's not what I mean. Let's be very clear about what this is. If So if someone is found acquitted or found guilty of, a, of murder, and then they cannot be retried for that crime again, right? So that's, that, that specific murder. Now, in Queensland, the, the current law is that it's, it's in essence, and this isn't verbatim, the essence of it is if there's fresh and compelling evidence that the prosecution can bring that wasn't available or used at the time of the original trial, there are circumstances with, in which a fresh trial can be ordered. So that double jeopardy law doesn't extend there, right? And the Queensland Attorney General Shannon Fentiman wants to broaden the scope of that legislation to include sexual assault and sexual violence crimes, including rape. So that means in these circumstances with Walter Sofronoff's inquiry and the results of that inquiry, there can be a retrial for this fresh evidence that comes out of the review of this of this DNA lab, this state run forensic lab and what the results of that have been, which is basically that they are prioritising speed over accuracy And they are not using the entire sample, as you've said, in incredible detail. That was a great explanation.
0: Yeah, well, I think it is one of those things as well where you're right, it is overcomplicated in many aspects. And I think if you take it back, you know, myself as a victim survivor or many other people who have had to go through this system, if you were to look at a lot of these cases, potentially, which are slam dunk cases, and people have that CSI effect where if there is no DNA, they are less likely to convict of a crime. Even if they agree with everything else, if the DNA is not there, they're not going through with it. And I think this is quite scary with the fact that so many people don't come forward already. You know, there is like they're saying, this, there's 14% that come forward to police. The amount of those that have DNA available, the amount of um, people that go through to testing, the amount of people that get swabs taken, that give in clothes, you know, the amount of people that then go to trial, we're not looking at, You know, we're still looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of cases, but we're not looking at a whole representative of the population. How many sex offenders are we catching in the net possible? And we're not catching any of them right now. And the scary thing is that there could be so many things that are happening. You know, if one person comes forward, they've got, you know, very compelling evidence, but the DNA comes back as not detected when, as a matter of fact, if they had processed it correctly or if they did that secondary test, It would come back that that actually was the person and that person would now be in jail for 10 years. It is, if you put it into that context and you say that one person going through that and then times that by 10,000, you know, and then by the other crimes that could be potentially impacted by this end-to-end process not sufficiently working. And you're right when you said that double jeopardy thing as well. And I think the example I would give people in, the very famous example I think most of us think about when we think about Double Jeopardy is the murder of Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson and, you know, the famous Johnny Cochran, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. You know, if the DNA is not there, um, people aren't getting it done. And, you know, the reason that he wasn't retried was because of that. He wasn't allowed to be retried for the same murders because he was found not guilty of them. He ended up going to jail later, obviously, for different things and was found guilty by the civil trial, but not in the criminal courts. And that's something that they're trying to, I think, within these recommendations rectify because it's just an utter, utter failing and a horrendous failing for victims of crime everywhere. And like you said, potentially marginalised people who are going into jail at much higher rates, that have a burden of proof for criminal convictions that is less than the average person that could have potentially had exculpatory evidence.
1: Yeah, and I think that, you know, what's interesting is that these conversations are really important about the way that accountability looks for the criminal trial process and when we're collecting evidence and when we're including everything that's collected in police investigation and when we're looking at prosecution. But also, like, there is such a vital conversation to be had around reframing the way criminal justice works and looking at alternate pathways outside of a criminal trial. You know, if we want, if we, if we have issues surrounding the engagement that complainants can have with a system that is, you know, by design going to re-traumatize them and leave them worse off than when they entered just by pursuing their complaint with a, a very low likelihood of achieving conviction, I think that we need to be looking at alternates to that sort of conviction and criminal conviction and imprisonment process. You know, that's not always what victim survivors are seeking. And I think that the criminal justice system needs to look outside of that. And I think it comes back to, you know, this idea of, as you said, you know, often the, the physical evidence, the DNA is considered a smoking gun in a trial. It's considered the thing that will secure a conviction. The fact that that's been um, undermined here or compromised is fucked Um, great expert description there from me, but I think that it's so particular and particularly awful in sexual assault and rape claims because you have people that are being turned away by the system at at the very first step because they do not have that evidence. And in circumstances where they do, you know that that is a case that is likely to go very far. So the implications are really far-reaching and could be the difference. And I think that, you know, it's – Highly politicized issue, and it's going to be politicized because you know, we you know, I think we briefly spoke about the fact that if they were to come out and Walter Softmanoff was to say this could have far reaching implications for the overturning and the changing of of verdicts, you know, over the last X amount of years, what does that communicate to the public about, especially when the first week of law school, the whole concept of our legal system that is always taught is, you know, we would rather a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent be jailed. And then when we look at things like this, that undermines the entire concept that we have predicated the idea of beyond reasonable doubt on, you know, whenever someone is leaves, whenever a complainant leaves this system more traumatized and they don't achieve conviction and their story, they don't feel heard. They don't get what they want in any shape or form. Often we say, well, it's due process. It's you know beyond reasonable doubt. It's this concept of you know we will not jail an innocent person, and that's why the bar is so high. Well, when we have issues like this, that negates everything that that other side is teaching us. So how do we re-examine this system and sort of look at rewiring some very human errors that occur at every step? And that's a really difficult question. And to be fair, I don't have the solution, but I think that it's about in the first place acknowledging the errors, and we're barely doing that yet. Yeah.
0: And it is so terrifying when issues are occurring in a scientific lab, you know, that you think are sitting outside political influence. You're thinking that these are scientists, these are people who are impartial, these are people. And, you know, when you think about, you know, I think most of the people who came forward were, they were already trying to raise the issue that they had known for a while that this was the action of few people who were in charge, I believe. But it is a terrifying thing when you think about it as a member of the community because we put so much faith in the system. But, again, what are the wider-reaching impacts of this DNA? And, you know, one of the things that I think we've discussed, obviously, at length is the end-to-end misogyny that women experience. And that can be at the hands of prosecutors and that can be at the hands of police officers. And one statistic that really frustrates me more than anything is these rates of false accusations because what is that statistic, because that statistic is not the amount of people who have been convicted and found guilty of making a false accusation. That could be um, an interpretation of somebody withdrawing their complaint and saying, I don't want to go through this process anymore. And if that potentially police officer has the view that that is now a false allegation, where does that statistic end up and where does that lie? It's interesting in the terms of capturing the data where does that start come from? And the reason I say that is because how many women have come forward and potentially had or how many people and children even have come forward with DNA from sexual assaults or from other violent crimes, even murders, for example, and had DNA there that was potentially the linchpin for their case, that was potentially the vindicating moment for people to finally believe them that it happened, for potentially a parent to believe that their child was sexually abused or molested by a family member for potentially a woman to have been abused by somebody, a stranger in a pub or something like that. And for that to come back as not being there could have also the far reaching effects of them not being vindicated in any way, even for them to be disbelieved to the point of them being blamed for lying. And I think these are the broader wide impacts that happen. It's not just that they didn't get their date caught. court. It is the wider implications that this means for people who are coming forward in their mental health. Imagine going forward and knowing that something happened to you and the institutional gaslighting you get back when they say, sorry, no DNA detected, and then finding out now as well that they probably could
1: have. It's a horrible feeling that's going to impact millions. Absolutely. And I think it's such an important distinction that we sort of remind ourselves that In a criminal trial and when, you know, a prosecution occurs, the person isn't found guilty or innocent. They're found guilty or not guilty. Not guilty does not say they are innocent. It it asserts that the prosecution wasn't able to establish into a jury or to a judge only that they weren't able to establish that the person was guilty beyond reasonable doubt. That is not asserting that, therefore, they are innocent. It's asserting that they have failed to make their case, right? And that is such an important distinction, I think, that people don't think about, you know. And that's not to say that everyone's guilty, obviously. But it is to say that the language is so important in all of these contexts and the way that we talk about these issues is so vital. And I think you're absolutely right. I don't know what that data entails. I've never thought about that before. It's quite fascinating because, obviously, you will have circumstances where... And, I, you know, when I was at university, I actually worked for the Director of Public Prosecutions in Queensland for a short period of time, low level. I was managing briefs of evidence and I was actually transcribing police interviews for juries. And I have experienced interviews where the person admitted that they were lying. And this wasn't about a rape. It was never about a sex crime. Um, but there was an there was an instance, one, one instance where a person said, I've actually lied about that. We also don't know the context of how that occurred. We have no idea, right, of what the behind the scenes of that looked like. But to think about the year and a half I spent there and the hundreds and hundreds of tapes, I've only ever once heard someone re- um, sort of go back on what their claim was in, in a taped recording. And if we look at that stat, that doesn't match 5% or, you know, whatever they're claiming for it to be. And so when we're looking at it, yeah, does it entail circumstances where someone's found not guilty does it entail where there wasn't enough evidence, and the police suggested they withdraw their statement? You know what? Do, what does that look like in circumstances where we are working within a system that encourages us to stay silent? And that is such an important question. What do these stats look like, and how can we reframe this conversation to say a withdrawal of or our or our not unwillingness to proceed with a complaint? is not a reflection of what actually occurred. It's a reflection of the viability and what's going to be lost, further further taken from us in an attempt to reclaim the story. And if that is too big a price to pay, it is only fair and expected that we will not engage with a system that is seeking to undermine us and is seeking to humiliate us and that is seeking for the public to sort of negate our personal experiences. And, you know, like any woman that comes forward and reports is, you know, it's – it's so, I hate the word brave, you know, I hate to say it's brave because it's 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 speaking your truth and that shouldn't be considered, you know, like it's just a, it's such a robust thing to do in the face of a system that has done everything to want your silence and to seek it and to enforce it. And I think that that's just something we're not talking about enough.
0: Absolutely. And I think that is the other thing where you turn around and you say, even though in that circumstance, potentially where somebody said, I lied about it, were they? Have they recanted and they're saying that they're lying because they're trying to run as far away as they possibly can from the situation yeah. right now because it could be, again, you know, a health and safety issue. If we're talking about intimate partner violence or family safety, family-like violence situations like that, stalking that's often not taken seriously, people and women specifically know the emotional temperature. You know, we have that undercurrent. We've been the frogs in the cooking pot for a very long time. We know when it's about to get really hot. And if that self-assessment and risk assessment means that I potentially have to come forward and not only recant my allegation, right, but say that I was lying just so that I can push it as far away as I can humanly possibly do it, that's also a factor that's not considered. And that's just where I come from it because, you know, I think when we talk about sexual assault statistics, we know we've got the vernacular around that to say these are, The people who have come forward to the police and, you know, the reason that we know the gap is because we've got an assumption based on the people who are accessing emergency services could be police for immediate intervention, ambulance services, and it could be rape shelters and family violence services. So that's where that data is coming from. And we acknowledge and know that the gap is there. We know that a lot of people don't come forward about it. That's the 14% we're talking about now. But it is that thing, and I find it so much when we're talking about these cases uh, or anything in this realm that oh well people lie about it all the time we can't assume that women are telling the truth when you've got it out there that there's a 2.5 percent rate of people that come that make false allegations but that 2.5 percent you can't tell me the breakdown of the stats of that and you can't tell me where there is ambiguity in the data there that's an issue because that's not a factual statistic that is based on people who have been convicted of perjury or of making a false allegation of somebody. And that's another thing that, you know, again, we need to get better at calling out. And it's just a different model. And I I just find it interesting that if you do raise that with somebody who's got this view, you know, that's just like Team Johnny Depp or, you know, yeah. fuck Brittany Higgins or women lie all the time, if you bring that stat back to them to even have a general conversation, most of the times you're going to get end up being called I don't know, some kind of misogynistic comment and it's never going to get anywhere.
1: Yep, absolutely. And I think that it's funny because I think that often there's this sort of assumption that for women who believe survivors, and and for women and men who believe survivors, that our view is like overly simplistic and it writes off the process and the presumption of innocence and all these ideas. And actually, when we really take a step back, the simplistic view is theirs. The view that writes off a woman's claim just by virtue of, you know, this ideal of like, oh, this, their ideal that, you know, women make false accusations all the time, the world is changing, you know, if back in my day I would have been locked up, okay, wait a job on yourself, that's disgusting. Um, what do you want to take from that? There's always this sort of commentary that is so simplistic and reductive, and they claim that we're the ones that are just sort of, jumping to the finish line, prosecuting without process, convicting without, you know, institutional record and timeline of events and criminal trial and blah, 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 blah. All the buzzwords come out, right? Every buzzword under the sun, it's painful to participate in. And that's why often we just stay silent because it's easier than arguing at Christmas lunch with your uncle that is committed to hating women and probably doesn't believe in our right to read or something, right? But I think that it's interesting because always, when I'm, on Teak especially, I'm really trying to separate this idea of like, Two things can exist at once. It's this false dichotomy that you can't believe someone and also retain the presumption of innocence because when someone comes forward and discloses something to you, sitting with them again and saying, I believe you, I hear you, is different to prosecuting and criminally convicting the person they are accusing, right? They are confiding in you and sharing something deeply personal and intimate, and if our job is to see our own humanity aside from an institution That's a really easy one to sit there here sharing that, right? And I think that there's always this, like, why didn't she report? Why would she, looking at what's going on, that is more the question, that pushback. Well, why would she? What would draw her to a process that is designed to deeply, deeply traumatize her? The second part of that is, you know, this idea that this presumption of innocence is being undermined. No, it's not. We are not even at the stage where this person is making a complaint to a formal and making a formal report. I think this distinction and this this inability for two things to exist at the same time and have a complicated conversation and have a really powerful conversation, again, this other side of the conversation wants it to be this clear timeline. Well, if it doesn't reach conviction, it didn't happen. Fuck that. We need to go back to the start and see the humanity in each other and be able to have really difficult, messy, clumsy conversations because they're the ones that make change. And I just think it's it's such a, compl- a complicated issue and we're kind of at this precipice and this sort of crux where all this change is potentially happening um, socially. And actually, also, we're seeing legislative reform sort of beat social change. Like the criminalisation of stealthing has kind of come at a time when a lot of people don't know what stealthing means soon, which is so good to see proactive reform. But we need to see fundamental systemic change to the institutions and we need to see fundamental social values changes to the people that believe that we're inherently lying when we're sharing very personal information just because we didn't report and go to trial at the times they wanted us to, you know? And I use very we, us language. And I know that like I don't exist as a survivor of rape. You know, I think most women exist as survivors of sexual assault, sexual harassment and, and forms of abuse and yeah. violence. But I think that I really like to talk about it collectively too, because I don't believe the stats are as few as they are. I think that so many women feel, you know, we we aren't even educated on what's happened to us a lot of the time. We can't identify it because it's so common. And I think there's just such broad conversations that need to have need to happen, and we need men to be involved so desperately.
0: Yeah. And that thing that I talk about a lot is believe all survivors and believe survivors and everything, and standing with people who are coming forward. I would much rather have to stand next to somebody and then you know end up being counter sued and coming back as fully guilty of making the whole thing up. I'd rather support them through that anyway. But I'm not saying believe all survivors because I believe in every single person that is saying that. I know that there is a chance and I know that there is a likelihood and a probability and a possibility that that is occurring, that people might lie. I'm saying that every single person that comes forward, regardless of their age, their gender, their socioeconomic status, the color of their skin, their, like any, any factor should allow them to have a fair and equitable access to an investigation and a criminal trial. If that's what they want, they should be believed from the beginning by a police officer who hears the first instance by a support service that hears the first instance by a friend because we need to do our investigation before we end up saying they're the ones who are lying. And it's people who are uninformed or ill-informed about trauma responses and the rates of people coming forward who are making the most noise about what victim survivors and trauma survivors should be doing, and that's a lot of the conversation around Amber Heard's responses to different things as well. There is no perfect victim and there is no perfect offender. There are cases that have come so far where you think this is a slam dunk case and because of that the prosecution takes their foot off the accelerator and they don't put forward a comprehensive enough investigation and those people are found not guilty. Now in the eyes of most people we can acknowledge and see that the the evidence is overwhelming, O.J. Simpson probably being one of them. But when you take that and you flip it, What we're fighting for is the access for everybody to have access to a bias-free investigation by authorities where it is required. And that's for anybody that comes forward. Believing survivors is not a hard thing. Expecting police to investigate every single case with the same amount of effort, with the same amount of resources, is not too much to ask.
1: Absolutely, and I think that another piece of this puzzle is, you know, I I think that we do need to have like a really transparent conversation about how high the threshold is to establish guilt. And, you know, I'm not I'm not questioning and I'm not arguing in any capacity that we we uh, lower that, that we undermine that in any way, because I think it's vital. Um, And I think that when we have a lot of um, charges or criminal charges brought in a matter broad regarding sexual violence, There is very little evidence. You know, often we do not have that DNA evidence. There is no physical evidence and it can rely on the oral testimony and police statements and other witness statements potentially of the people involved, right? And often that can be two people. And when we look at a jury and we see a cross-section of society, a a random, fairly chosen cross-section of society, there's questions to be had about the way that occurs when we think of peremptory challenges and things, which is, you know, where the defence can say we don't want this juror on the basis of how they look, their occupation, their name, which is just, you know, often young women will be ousted from jury simply by the fact that the defence believes they will agree with the victim survivor. So that's one question. But when we have those twelve people that sit on the um, juries of criminal trials, it is incredibly difficult to get twelve people who are random members of society to firmly agree as a unanimous majority that beyond reasonable doubt they believe the prosecution has, has proven the case and the person's guilt. When we only have that oral testimony, because it comes back to then credibility. And and the, um, the accused doesn't have to take the stand. They retain the right to silence. So when we look at these circumstances, it's so, so obvious why we achieve so little conviction. And that's why my argument is always going to come back to you more than anything, more than, you know, DNA evidence, more than, you know, this beyond reasonable doubt presumption of innocence. Like, I really think that we just just step aside the buzzword shit a lot of the time and say, there are so many human elements to this. There are so many human elements that are always going to be prejudicial, that are always going to be biased, you know, and that's so hard to navigate. And that's why I'm always going to argue for these alternate pathways because when are we asking the complainants what they're seeking? We're not. It's either they're pursuing a criminal trial and they're pursuing conviction or they're not interested. And that is such a binary that offers no closure to a lot of these people. It offers no support, no assistance, no trauma-informed care. And so we need to actually step back to the start and say, what are you looking for? And how how can we build a system that seeks to achieve those outcomes. Often what that might look like is, I don't want this person to do that again to anyone else, right? That might look like education. That might look like alternate pathways, right? That might look like alternate mediation for some people. We don't know, but these crimes are complex and they happen in very different environments. It might look like um, someone saying, I actually just want to reclaim my agency. I had a really good conversation. It's coming out next year with the um, principal, solicitor, and managing partner of um, Mark Lawyers, Michael Bradley, who wrote a really great book on Um, how the law, the legal system isn't fit, um, isn't fit for purpose and fails survivors. And it's something that he said, you know, often they're looking to reclaim agency and take back the story that's been taken from them, you know, reclaim a part of themselves that's been lost. And that isn't going to occur in this system, a system which is committed to re-traumatizing complainants. So I think that when we think about these elements, again, it is such a clunky, complex fit to pursuing better outcomes. But it's a conversation that needs to be had that this process is going to align with very few people's sought-out outcomes.
0: Yeah, and I think there's two things to that as well. And one of the things is, and I think I've seen this through a lot of the conversations I've had with people who have recently gone through the system, is that 12 jurors don't want to convict this young man, most of the time young white man with his entire future ahead of them because they don't want to ruin his life. And there are these giant... You know, sentences for these people, but as well, you know, at what level does bias come into it where they don't want to hold him to that account? They've got no right over the sentencing that is the judge or a separate thing that happens through the systems in many cases. But for them, they almost don't want to do that as well. It's all it's like the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime in, in a lot of people's minds. And that's causing the sway, I think, in a lot of circumstances. But additionally, I mean, it's kind of ironic saying, you know, why don't we use science in this because we've just spoken about the breakdown of science. But, um, you know, like if you were to say, you know, do a test and a clinical trial on something, we'd be talking about a double-blinded trial. We'd be talking about something that didn't take race or age or anything into consideration. We'd be talking about people making assessments without their biases wherever possible getting involved. And the current system is the same system that used to convict and condemn and, you know, murder women for being witches. This is the same trial system. You know, somebody said that they were feeling great the other day and then it became sunny. A group of men decided that she was a witch and drowned her. All of a sudden she floated and, oh, maybe she wasn't, you know, like that's the same premise. This is the same kind of system.
1: Absolutely. And one of the other things that um, Michael Bradley talks about in his book and then spoke about in this interview with me was that, you know, rape started out as a property crime. It was the violation of another man's property because they raped his wife or his daughter. And so when we think about it through that context, and I think the historical implications of the way this crime was created in law is, is so important because that's how we see its evolution through time. This can be reformed, but look at the way it started. Look at the way that our onus of proof developed. Look at the way that, um, you know, consent law was developed because what it actually now means is that, you know, you have to – the way that the absence of consent has to be proved is essentially a double negative, you know, and it's – now that we have affirmative consent, it's a different level and a different standard that has to be established. But I'm really interested to see how the case law actually examines that when it comes to it, you know, and how that actually looks in terms of tangible reform and tangible outcomes for survivors – So I think that like coming back to the roots of, you know, the legal system, and I think one of the great quotes that, you know, gets shared a lot at the moment is like, the system isn't broken, it was built this way. And I think it's just like really important to come back to that when we look at the legacy, when we look at the history of these crimes, they were really never created and the system was never really created with our needs in mind. It was created with a question of, is this person guilty to the point where we aren't really risking putting an innocent person in jail? And that was really the only conception of it. And it has no regard for anyone else involved in this process. And I think that at a baseline, like, that's what we need to be reconsidering at this point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I love this book by Jennifer Robinson Robinson and Kenny Ishida as well, because it does highlight a lot of these factors. And one of the things that they did call out, again, with that property crime reference that you made, was, you know, penile penetration being seen as more of an offence than other types of penetration because there was the chance of the woman becoming pregnant, which would then, you know, limit their, you know, availability to bear more children or they're, they're tainted goods now because they've bored one child. Like especially back in the day as well where maternal um, death rates were quite high, especially for childbirth. And it's just if you take a step back and realise that it was only in 1981 that in Victoria they criminalised marital rape, you know, it wasn't any years before that that women were first allowed to sit on juries. Like we've had to fight our way in at every stage. So, it is not a fair and just and equal system. It is just being a system that's been tinkered with and adjusted along with societal requirements at times, but that doesn't mean that the conviction rates have changed. The conviction rates are still sitting post Me Too at the exact same point. And if you look at that in terms of societal beliefs and societal um, changes that have happened, even changes to laws since then, the fact we're not even seeing those benefits of actual People being convicted of these crimes in and of itself again is just exhausting, you know. And it, it is like, I understand people listening to this are going to be like, where do we start? What do we do? Um, but I do want to say thank you so much for coming on and having this chat with me. It's been great to have a back and forth, both of you know, to see your passion as well. And you and me get a bit red faced yeah. as we're talking about
1: this. Yes, it's <laughs> Was very there easy any um, other?
0: yeah was there any final thoughts that you wanted to share um before we sign off
1: I think that in like I think a really good point you raise is like people saying where do we start and I think that I think that the best thing that you can do is n- not only engage with the things that purely make sense straight up I think that where you read something and you're not sure about it it's really important to try not to shy away and I know that there's fatigue and I know that there's exhaustion and there's just this inability to Maintain the energy and the sort of emotion to keep up this pursuit of change, right? And, and I get that, especially with everything else going on in the world. You know, you can think about the dying planet, you can think about the criminal justice system. Pick one, right? It's like it's a very complicated space, but I think it's so important that where you don't understand, that you don't shy away and that you don't disengage because it's too it's too hard. I think that Google something every day. Google Google a term you don't understand. Look up another news source. You know, you've read it here. Go and read it somewhere else just challenge something little every day. And it doesn't look like large donations. It doesn't look like, you know, making huge waves in reform. But it does also look like not doing the things that are at the microphone. It does look like doing the background stuff that's so vital and that and that does not go applauded, you know, the little things that might mean going to an event and, you know, handing out water, going to an event and helping hand out brochures. It looks like the little advocacy stuff as much as it looks like the big stuff sharing things on social media, talking to a friend about it at coffee. These are heavy things, but they can be engaged with in lighter ways than you think. And I'm actively always trying to make it accessible and digestible and talk about things in those ways that aren't going to bog you down and ruin your life. And sometimes it has to be. Sometimes it has to be deep and dark to really get to the message. But really trying to just... Have the conversation where you feel you can have it is so vital and don't shy away from things that seem overly complicated because they're doing that on purpose so that you feel that you aren't a part of it. And it's so important to challenge that and push back on that and say, no, I'm here and I want to learn. That's everything.
0: Absolutely. And what that will entail do is help support the people that are really feeling really fatigued right now. I know all domestic violence advocates, all people who are lived experience, who have going through through sexual assault, child sexual assault, family violence, things like that, to see all of this in the media consistently is an int- incredibly triggering experience. To have to consistently see these things in the media and to try and advocate consistently also getting to the end of the year is absolutely exhausting. Though helping pick up the slack, helping share, helping spread the word Sending some love rather than, you know, a comment starting with, I hate the royal family, but, you know, yeah. you know just sending a message of support as well. You don't know how far that goes to know that the content that people, you know, like Cheek Media and like the Reclaim Me podcast, when we're putting the effort in to create content or to write things down or to do our own investigation, to get a message here and there that says thank you for the work that you're doing, it goes so far in terms of just re-energising us and feeling like, all right, I've hit somebody here and I, you know, to know that impact I think is great as as well. So if you can, send a message of support to somebody who you think is doing a great job as well. It doesn't um, all have to be advocacy all the time, but sending a bloody nice word goes a bloody long way as well.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, it's funny, like 10 nice messages can be outweighed by one awful one, but, you know, I still always think of those particular messages, even if it's letting us know like, you know, my mom, like someone messaged, us. I said their mom read out my post to the whole family at brunch and they had to be silent. And I was like, I don't even need to thank you, but to know that that's happening somewhere, because you don't think about it. You never think that's happening to the words that you write. And that like changed my day. Honestly, I was just like, that is absurd. So, you know, it's just Absolutely. it's always nice to know that it's, it's going further than you ever think it is, you know, and that's what re-energizes me. Absolutely. And,
0: um, sadly earlier this year, Emily Thompson was murdered and they are non-binary. And I had written her name was and to misgender somebody and mispronounce somebody as well is incredibly triggering and it's incredibly awful. And a few of um, their friends connected with me and let me know that I'd done the wrong thing. So I redid the post and I edited everything and reposted it. And I think just even in, in that, you know, having the conversation of being close knit is good. Just because we make mistakes, it will happen. We're trying our best, but we're also not formal media organisations that have the resources to be able to do everything, but we are fact-checking what we can. Um, so I think it is a wonderful call-out as well that, you know, any feedback that you give us will be taken on, you know, not that I'm going to change everything, but something that is serious like that, absolutely. Um, yeah. Because I don't mind deleting something and reposting and I don't mind adjusting it when it's necessary. And, you know, Emily was murdered and it is a horrible thing and I don't ever want to re-traumatise her friends or family further just because I've used the wrong pronouns and sadly on that post became a big thing about pronouns and people misgendering them and it was sadly a a fiasco that turned into something that it shouldn't have but I digress I just think um yeah
1: but it sounds like you handled it absolutely well and it also sounds like you know I think when these things happen, they're things that you remember for years when you're creating in future. And so it's always going to be something that stays with you. And that's probably never going to happen again. And I think that, you know, it, as much as you probably do feel that that guilt for that, you know, it, it means it won't happen again. And I think that's the most important yep. thing is that you weren't attacking and you weren't responding. You were just like taking on and improving. And that's so vital. Absolutely. And I think that that's just all we can do. We do the best that we can. Um,
0: But thank you so much. Um, If anyone has any questions or uh, comments or anything, then please get in touch. I'd be happy to send them over if somebody wants to ask you a question as well, Hannah. But if you don't already, please go follow um, all of the accounts. Do you want to give us a bit of a rundown on where people can access your content?
1: Yes. So Instagram is cheekmedia.co. Um, Twitter is Cheek Media Co. Couldn't get the dot in that one. Um, you can email me, (laughs) cheekmediaco at gmail.com. Our website is cheekmedia.com.au. Um, and we have a Patreon as well, which is patreon.com slash cheekmediaco. Beautiful. So if you can go on, support the Patreon,
0: go follow, comment, share, like, subscribe, all of the things that I normally say in the podcast as well. It does, it means a lot to have the interaction, to have people consistently finding um, so that you can grow the platform as well, because what you're doing is incredible and it is very unique as well. Your humour goes a long way and your sarcasm goes a long way in making your points in a very poignant way. And that's something that drew me to the account for the, f- for the first time when I came across it. It's just so you have an ability, I think, like we were talking about Jess Hill before to be so able to articulate a complex thing in a very meaningful way You've got this thank twang you. as well with an incredible humour um, that I really thoroughly enjoy. You know, there are so I'm many glad. like those little reels that you were doing, <laughs> had <my laughs> cackling, laughing, but you're conveying very real things. And I think, um, you know, for anybody who wants to learn more about what's going on in Australia um, around this area, I definitely
1: encourage them to follow you and thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much and right back at you. I really appreciate being asked. I just love doing this. It's so fun and and it it doesn't seem fun because it's such serious issues, but it's really nice to talk to people and sort of progress the cause and really inform my views and challenge them as well.
0: Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for joining us. But for now, let's sign off. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye.
2: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.